there was a, um, an interesting report about 11 years ago, November 2006, written by the World Health Organization, um, and it was to do with the growing problem of counterfeit medicines. So all sorts of treatment and drugs being passed off as authentic, maybe antibiotics or drugs for high cholesterol or cancer or malaria or HIV, HIV AIDS even. And so imagine you've got two pills in front of you, both looking the same, both identical, both promising to bring you to health, to do you good, to bring you life, and yet one of them works and the other does nothing. At best it does nothing, at worst it will kill you. You put your hope and your trust in, in a cure from whatever illness you're suffering from, something to take away the pain, something to take away the symptoms, that, that it might give you a better life and yet it's a fake one. This stark, life-changing contrast sat in front of you. And you know, this bit in Matthew's Gospel, this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching um, and coming towards the end of in this little series we're doing, sits just below the surface, a very similar conundrum, a very similar idea. So before we jump into 7 to 11 um, for this evening, page 971 if you have a Burgundy Bible, but before we jump in and read that, I want to try and give you a little bit of an idea of where this sermon has been going from Jesus. And so to try and help you see a little more clearly what these verses mean, what they're here for, And what they mean for people like us. So what is this contrast within these verses, within this sermon? I don't want to steal the thunder of, I think, primarily Andy for the next few weeks, but he's not here, so I shall. Um, As the sermon ends, as the sermon ends, if you just flick over the page particularly, you'll see it. There are three little stories with two things in each that look very similar, that look almost alike, and yet there's a stark contrast with where each one will get you. So, on page 972, you've got two roads to travel upon, verse 13 to 14, and yet one of them leads you all the way to destruction. Then 15 to 23, I think you've got two trees that bear fruit, And yet one of them poisons you and brings you death. And then finally, and hence the picture on the screen, you've got two houses built. Both have kind of foundations. And yet one of them totally collapses when the storms come. And you see, that is how Jesus summarises the Sermon on the Mount. That is the end of his sermon. That is the thing to grip the people as the sermon ends. And it essentially comes down to two sets of people and two types of righteousness that you see weaving right through the sermon, right through the whole sermon from Jesus, from chapter 5 through to chapter 7, end of 7. We've got this contrast going right through. What have you got? On one side, I think you've got the Pharisees or teachers of the law And for for most of them, and most of the time, and in many ways, they seem to follow God for their own benefit now. Pharisaical righteousness is an external righteousness, and it is seen, and it makes sure that everybody else notices, and it's kind of to impress others. The kind of thing that's bragged about, and you compare with others, and it's even used to make other people feel small. So there's an external righteousness on one side, It's even a bargaining chip with the Lord. Look, look, Lord, I've done this for you. I've ticked these boxes for you. 
I've served you in this way, will you please give me what I need? Come on, I've paid my part, I've done my side, now give me what you owe me. That's one kind of righteousness that goes right the way through the sermon, I'll give you some examples in a moment. But then on the other side, the true medicine, the medicine that will bring you life, is a Jesus righteousness that is done in private. It is not done to impress others. It is an internal righteousness that is to do with the heart rather than simply outward external acts. And why do we do it? It's because we know we have a Father in heaven who loves us. And so as you go through the whole sermon, actually, you get this nagging, annoying question that challenges us again and again and again. Do you serve God for your own benefit, for reward now to impress other people? Or do we do it for the benefit of our Father in heaven? For a reward in the future even? Not to be seen by others? And so he says to you, are you taking the wide path? Are you trusting the true prophet? Are you building on true foundations of Christ? That, I take it, is his words of grace rather than works and pharisaical righteousness. You get it on the internal, external thing as well. So back in chapter 5 and verse 21, it's not just, a, it's, of course it's not murdering, we all agree with that, but it's not even being inwardly angry. This is about internal righteousness. Or 527, it's not about adultery, they would basically agree with that, everybody was on the same page there, but it's not even about inward lust and what's going on in our hearts. So do you see the two alternative options? One is an external pharisaical righteousness that is to do with impressing other people and means you end up building on sand. And yet Jesus says, build on me, build on grace. It's an internal righteousness that's to do with heart transformation. Um, you get it specifically as well, just to try and hit it home. You, we looked at it in a series before Christmas, but in chapter 6. Do you remember, chapter 6, we're to give and to pray and to fast only so your Father can see you and not for the benefit of those around you. Not like the Pharisees who would give so everyone saw, who would pray on street corners, who would fast and make sure people asked why they were fasting. And fundamentally the difference seems to be a people who know they have a Father in Heaven. They want that, seeking to find assurance, value, confidence in what they do, which leads, leads to anxiety which leads to stress, because you're always comparing yourself with others. You're never quite sure if you've done enough. You're not quite sure if you've earned his love or not. And then on the other side, do you know we have a Father in Heaven? We can trust him. He is good. He cares for us. He provides for us. And so as I read chapter 7 and verse 7 to 11, I want you to try and have those kind of two categories in your mind as I read it. See if you can hear it through the different ears, if you like. Why is Jesus saying this to these people? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See what he's saying? He's saying, you don't have to earn your relationship with God. He loves you already. Key verse, verse 11, he's your Father in heaven. He loves to give good gifts to those who ask him. And Jesus says, that will affect how you pray. That will affect your anxiety. That will affect your life. Because you are secure in him. If you want a sort of summary sentence for this evening, it's a two-halves thing. We're to pray with humble confidence because we have a good Father in heaven. It's not rocket science, but I wonder if something we need to learn. We're to pray with humble confidence, first half, because we have a good Father in heaven. Let's look at each half. So we're to pray with humble confidence. That is, this is about prayer, I take it, verse 7 to 11. Some might disagree, but I'd say this is less about evangelism, linking in with last week's sermon, but more about prayer as we look to our Father in heaven. And that is, it's about asking God for things. And the promise is, he will provide. If we ask for it, it will be given. If we seek, then we'll find. And if we knock, then the door will be open to us, says Jesus. I'll have to ask the question, do we believe that? Do you believe that if you ask, it will be given, and if you seek, then you'll find, and if you knock, then the door will be opened? Because doesn't the cynic in us question whether those things are true? Maybe we come this evening as people who have prayed. We've prayed for things, for, for many years even, and we've not seen an answer to those prayers, and we say, well, It says it's going to be given and found and opened, but why hasn't that happened? Because I've prayed and prayed and prayed for something. And it just seems that God's not heard. What's going on there? In fact, you look around the world, globally or even locally, and there'll be some parts of the church, I think, that have got this wrong. And they think if we pray hard enough for the Ferrari, then here the Ferrari will come. But you say, I'm not praying for a Ferrari, I'm praying for family who are ill, or I'm praying for family who who don't know Christ, and I long that they would know Christ. And I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and why hasn't the Lord answered? I'm not sure there there are easy answers to that one. There's something of a mystery to prayer. Sometimes the Lord wants us to persevere, to keep going, to keep praying, to keep knocking on the door. Sometimes perhaps it's just not part of his plan, and he asks us to trust him in that. Maybe one day we'll have more of a perspective and understanding. Maybe we won't. But he is God and we are not. But it starts off with the stance of if you pray it will be given. It will be found. The door will be opened. And so he longs for us to come and pray. What sort of things are we praying for What do we promise? Well, verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give a snake? 
What is this bread and fish that there are pairings you often see actually in the Gospels? Maybe you're thinking feeding the 5,000, maybe you're thinking Jesus um, on the barbecue, John 21, after the resurrection, bread and fish again. What's going on? Um, in this place at this time, bread and fish was something of the sort of daily necessities, the staples of life, the things needed for nourishment, normal everyday stuff. So in asking for bread and fish, there's a sense in which we're asking for what we need. In fact, Jesus has already clearly been teaching on um, how to pray. Again, if you were around in the autumn, in the mornings, we did the Lord's Prayer and there'll be some postcards at the back for us. But he's taught us already, 6 verse 11, to pray for daily bread. And to forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. So the daily stuff that we need, he, he provides and he pardons and he protects. Our Father will give us what we need, says Jesus. Of course the assumption is we're a people who do pray. We've spoken about this many times. The speed and the pace of our world of this city even, perhaps means that the assumption of prayer sadly is an assumption. Maybe lives get squeezed and priorities get skewed and time gets tight and to-do lists get too wrong and suddenly we find we've not really prayed actually. And we're proud. And to pray means we have to humble ourselves and remember that we're not God. And that we need him and that we can't do it by ourselves. So maybe we just need to back up initially and say, actually, do we pray? Are we those who ask and who seek and who knock? And this prayer is all well and good, but do we actually do that? Do we do that on our own? Do we do that as a church? Praying together is great. I'd love to commend you to come along to one of our regular prayer meetings each Thursday, 7am. Monthly on first Tuesdays, there'll be some breathing space opportunities as well. Um, as you know, as a corporate group looking to press pause and to pray together, to just take a step out of the relentless busyness of life. But to pray on your own as well. Don't believe the lie that, that it'll just happen. Plan to pray, book it in, prioritise it. Shape your diary around it rather than it being shaped around your diary. Find somewhere to do it. Work out what works for you. And there's a humble confidence as well that seems to be there as we pray too. Um, that is, it is, the manner with which they are to come to God is not one of cringing timidity, but it's like a son asking for something from his dad. I'm not asking for something fancy. He, he's not after... Um, something extravagant. It's just food for the day. Just what he needs. Not swaggering in with arrogance, but we're the child recognising that he's the father. Not demanding or seeking an ultimatum, but just knocking and asking. Maybe the Pharisees would come in kind of clothed with their own righteousness with their own good deeds, with the, the fasting and the praying on street corners and the giving that they had done and saying, well, look, God, you owe us now. We, we, we've done our side. 
They need to give us what we need or give us what we want. Why can we come to our Father like that? Because He is good and because He is our Father in heaven. When we, um, when we looked at the uh, Lord's Prayer back in the autumn, if you were around, you might remember that picture, very striking picture, of um, at the Oval Office. Do you remember with JFK sat behind? And underneath the desk, you've got little um, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., his son, just underneath the Oval Office desk. And that captures, I think, something beautiful. I love that. I, I was supposed to bring it with me. It's upstairs, I apologise. Um, but something beautiful of just the, the intimacy and yet the power of the one to whom we come. He, he, he rules and he reigns and he's powerful, but he is he's our father, he loves us. Who else can go to the king in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water? We have this privilege of relating to him. Which means when we ask, then we receive. And when we seek, then we find. And when we knock, then the door is open. Because he's not just able to answer prayer, but he longs to. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We, we can trust him even more than we can trust our earthly fathers. But did you, did you spot how he describes earthly fathers, verse 11? It's a little sting in the tile. It's, it's an interesting one. If you then, though you are evil, which sounds a bit unfair. Jesus, realistic both about the reality of our hearts, that inward selfward, sinful drive within us, but also how much better our God is than even the best earthly father. And if we, despite our flaws and our failures, can give good things to our kids, how much more can God give good things to those who trust him? My um, little Abby is going to be six at the end of July, and we will put on a party for her. It will be noisy. There will likely be princesses and ninjas because she's a little girl and she's got older brothers. Um, there'll be pr- presents and pa- pancakes for breakfast. There'll be fun and games. It will be good. And his point is, if we as imperfect parents with sinful hearts and grumpiness and tiredness and selfishness can give her good gifts, well, can you just imagine our Heavenly Father, who, who never gets grumpy, who, who is never get, getting tired, who cannot be selfish, Just imagine the kind of good gifts that our Father in Heaven can give us. And that is how we're to relate to God. Now I'm also aware that as we think about this, we can get this wrong. We can get this wrong for different reasons. We can get it wrong in part because of the imperfection of our earthly fathers. So we judge Him wrongly because of what they are like. And they may be minor imperfections in our earthly fathers. They may be major imperfections in our earthly fathers. It's worth saying if they are major imperfections in our earthly fathers that that mean we can't relate to our Father in heaven well, then it's worth bringing that up and chatting to people. If there are significant and specific things in the way that you struggle to relate to God, 
because of an imperfect earthly father, then chat in your home group or chat to a Christian friend who loves you and knows you. Begin to talk about those things and pray through those things. So we can get it wrong because of the imperfection of our earthly fathers. We can get it wrong as well because we can be far too much like the Pharisees whom Jesus was speaking against. It's because we are at the centre and so it becomes about me and what I want and I'm at the heart of things. And so rather than God being a good, kind father, actually I'm kind of in charge of how I relate to him. And so either he needs to be placated like an angry teacher who's always on the lookout for us mucking up. How he feels about me depends upon me, really, and what, how I've done. And it's all about me, actually, in the end. So he's the angry teacher or he's the reluctant vending machine. And if I can just press the right buttons and get what I want in the right order, then I can, if I can give enough and serve enough and fast enough and pray enough, then God has to play ball. And how he feels about me and whether he answers my prayers actually become about me again. And what I've done. It's about me. More often than not, it's a mix of both. Depending on the time of the week it is or whatever it might be because our hearts constantly stray towards who we are we struggle to relate to God as father we have this wrong view of him another implication from verse 11 that strikes me is that because he's a good father we can trust him with what he gives us he's not going to give us a snake and he's not going to give us a stone which is liberating because it means we can pray with confidence and simply trusting that God will answer because he's willing and he's able but it means he knows more than me and so if I I ask something in prayer from him and it seems that's not what is good for me then he won't give it because he won't give me a stone but on the other side if I ask something in prayer for him and he gives it and he gives more perhaps than I was expecting it's bigger than I was hoping for Lord are you sure? can we trust that? well we can trust him because he is our good father you can relate that to all kinds of things you can relate that to churches looking to buy buildings thinking that's not quite what we were expecting but hey maybe maybe that's his good gift to us who knows The thing that struck me, though, in preparing for this, and we're nearly finished, is how much we pray like the Pharisees again. Do do you want to change your prayer life? I would take a guess and say that your internal voice is saying yes. Well, I think the answer is remember who God is. I think primarily it's not about... It's not about practicalities. It's not about diaries. It's not about alarm clocks. Foundationally, it's about knowing who he is. If you could remember that God is like this, that he is your Father in heaven and he gives good gifts to those who ask him, I think that would change the way we pray forever. I think that would change whether or not we pray I think that would change whether we ask or seek or knock. I think it would change the kind of prayers that we pray as well. Because we know that he's good and that he loves us and he knows what we need. 
And the problem is our hearts drift back into being Pharisees. And it becomes a thing we have to do to get what we need from him. Rather than the fact that he's a kind father. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that these verses, this lesson seems so simple. It seems the kind of thing that we ought to know. The kind of thing that we ought to have got to grips with. And yet we confess how difficult we find it to relate to you as our Father in heaven who gives good gifts to those who ask him. Well, thank you for the simple promise that, that if we ask, it will be given to us. And, and if we seek, then we'll find. And if we knock, then the door will be opened. Thank you that you are kind and good. Thank you that you aren't just able to answer prayers, but because you are our good Father in heaven, you are willing to answer prayers. And so, Father, we pray quite specifically for each person in this room this evening that you would be at work in us, helping us to apply these things that we might long to spend time with you in prayer. That we would be so captivated by you as our Father in heaven. That prayer would just seem natural. Change us, we pray. Transform us. Be at work in us. Might we be a people who ask and who seek and who knock because we know what you're like. In your son's name we pray. Amen.